If life is a mystery, who done it? Welcome to Ye Gods, I'm Scott Carter. Today's episode encores my conversation with Charlie Sykes, a patriotic and conscientious conservative political and pundit who now finds himself without a party. We discussed the fragility of democracy and the diminishing of decency in our governance and in our discourse. But before we hear that, let me read an excerpt from an inaugural address, and I want you to try to guess which president is speaking. Here it is. Because our strengths are so great, we can afford to appraise our weaknesses with candor and to approach them with hope. We find ourselves rich in goods but ragged in spirit. We are torn by division wanting unity. We see around us empty lives wanting fulfillment. We see tasks that need doing waiting hands to do them. To a crisis of the spirit, we need an answer of the spirit. And to find that answer, we need to look only within ourselves. When we listen to the better angels of our nature, we find that they celebrate the simple things, the basic things, such as goodness, decency, love, kindness. Greatness comes in simple trappings. The simple things are the ones most needed today if we are to surmount what divides us and cement what unites us. So whose words do you think those are? Obama's, uh, Reagan's, FDR's, Lincoln's maybe, or LBJ? No, the answer is Richard Nixon. January 1969, with a nation still reeling from the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy, with the Vietnam War raging, and with America's first landing on the moon still months away. And now, on that surprising note, please enjoy Charlie Sykes. You know, Scott, one of the things that just continues to grind at me is, is how many people who call themselves Christians are willing to embrace and tolerate hatred and division. And I keep thinking, how does this relate to your faith or what you think God wants of you? I do think that you can't separate ideology from whether or not you're a decent, honorable person. I mean, I can disagree with you on a lot of political issues, but I'm not willing to embrace a culture of lies and bigotry. Welcome to Ye Gods. I'm Scott Carter. As a writer, producer of Talk TV for 35 years, I've dealt with thousands of politicos and pundits. Of them, Charlie Sykes is a rarity. Decent, Wisconsin nice, smiling, gracious, a conscientious man of integrity in an often transactional profession. He was raised in a liberal, non-religious household, but became a Catholic and a Republican. He's still a Catholic, but no longer a Republican, though still a conservative. A journalist and radio host in Wisconsin for 40 years and the author of nine books, he is also co-founder and host on the Bulwark Podcast Network, whose motto is Country Over Party. Welcome to Ye Gods, Charlie Sykes. It's great to see you. Well, well I wish my mother could have heard that introduction. <laughs> I liked it and she would have believed it. <laughs> Thank you.
You know, I always appreciated working with you when I was producing Real Time and you were a guest and you were always one of the most conscientious guests that producers always appreciate when <laughs> the guest has actually thought about the topics to be explored before they arrive in the studio. And, and I know that democracy is a very important issue with you. And, I, and so today, I know on a lot of the podcasts or appearances you do, you have to be reacting to what happened that morning or, or the last, uh, in the last five minutes. Today, I want to go a little bit more, 30,000 feet above the earth and looking at the broad overview. So my question is, where do you think American democracy finds herself today? Fragile and, and, and in peril. One of the things I think we learned over the last few years is that uh, we're not exceptional in the sense that it can't happen here. Uh, I, I think there was a widespread belief that you know history had this arc and that that we were immune to many of the things that have happened to you know other cultures that have seen republics fall and democracy fail. And I think that what we've learned is that uh, is that no, we're not immune to all of that. And so, short answer to your question is, I think democracy is is in peril. It may not be hanging by a thread, but it's certainly very much in play. I very often, in the last few years, have been reminded of the Paul Simon lyric from American Tune that we can't be forever blessed. We have been mm -hmm. so fortunate as a country that we had the exact right person, and despite the faults of many of our founders. We have the exact right person to do the Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. We have the exact right person to be the general through the Revolutionary War. We have the exact right person to be framing the Constitution and the right person to be our first president, who didn't try to become a king and gave up power after two four-year terms. We, we have been incredibly lucky. We've been incredibly lucky during the Civil War with Abraham Lincoln, during World War II with Franklin Roosevelt. Some point we we will not necessarily continue to be as fortunate as we've been. No, and I, I I do think that there is an element of luck there because I often think about how things would have gone differently. What would have happened if you know Abraham Lincoln would have lost re-election in eighteen sixty four? What would have happened if Henry Wallace had become president instead of Harry Truman after World War II? We we have these mo these great stress tests. And then afterwards, we tell one another that, well, you know, see, uh, we, we can overcome any of that. Uh, you know, there was really no danger when in, when in fact it was never foreordained. It, it's never, it is never actually guaranteed. And I also have another analogy that I just keep in my mind here is that, is that we had this sort of reservoir of civic virtue and knowledge, and we've been drawing down on it for a very, very long time, just assuming that it was always there that we could squander all of those things, that we could play around at the margins because nothing was really dangerous. And now we're finding out that maybe it's not bottomless. Maybe we have drawn down on that reservoir of good fortune, good sense, good spirit. The, the, the better angels uh, of, our, of our nature were not actually tenured. They weren't guaranteed to us. Right. And my favorite example of the fragility of the democracy is I remember when you and I were both much younger, after Watergate, the phrase I kept hearing was, well, the system worked. Mm -hmm. But if the plumbers coming back around to the DNC office for the second time had not retaped the door so that the night watchman realized that somebody was actually there, the plumbers would never have been caught. That whole series of events would never occur. It was, it was, it, 
a, a lot of times it's by happenstance or just fortuitousness that we are able to 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 keep going. I also think that as you read the history of the rise and fall of the Greeks or the Romans or any other empire, it first starts with an assumption that that which is in place will stay in place. And so we can yep. be mm-hmm. corrupt. We can take advantage of the system. We can game the system to our individual ends. And it's all going to be okay because the basic this basic infrastructure of greatness is holding us up. But I think you're right. We have depleted it, and I, and we've we've just assumed it's always going to be there. It's, it's interesting you brought up Watergate because I was just looking at one of my old calendars and realized that five years ago today I was at a small gathering in San Francisco and John Dean gave a a presentation about Watergate to the group and I remember that I raised the question I had the chance to answer the question that was really burning in the back of my mind which is what if Watergate happened today. What would have happened if Richard Nixon had the media ecosystem or environment or the kind of political tribalism that we have now? Would he have survived? Would the system have worked? And Dean's answer was the same as my answer was that, no, I, I, don't, I don't think it would have worked. I think that the outcome would have been dramatically different. And I think that tells you something about the fragility of the, those systems. Yes, all of the institutions held in the 1970s, would those institutions still hold in the world we live in now? I'm, I'm less optimistic. I, I agree with you. And I think that even in those days, thinking about the days in which we grew up and when we had a sense of the wide spectrum of American politics, that looks so infinitesimal in comparison today. In other yeah. words, the fact that, that Nixon was behind the creation or the nourishing of the EPA or the National Endowment for the Arts or or so many other things. And so many people from that generation had served in World War II and had gone through a time of acquainting themselves not only with the the fragility of of America continuing and the free world continuing. I mean, there was still segregation of of the races during World War II, but, but there wasn't the sense before Watergate of the easy assumption that all institutions are completely corrupt. You know, I've, I've thought a lot about this, about this, that, that greatest generation. I spent a lot of time, obviously my father was a member of that, so was my mother and, and her first husband. And I've spent a lot of time with veterans on things like the honor, honor flight. There is something distinctive about that generation, that they also understood the price that people paid for this country. They understood that it wasn't free and, that, and it wasn't a cliche for them. And, and they had a, they had kind of a, they had a deep visceral patriotism that was not flashy. It was not flag waving. It was just sort of a sense that, okay, we are in this together and that, and that there are things that you do and there's things that you don't do. So there was, Richard Nixon was not a good man. Um, and, you know, engaged in, in criminal activity. But there was also a fundamental sense of where you couldn't go that I'm not sure that we have today with some of our political figures. So yes, that common story, that understanding of what it meant to be in America, what the value of America was, was there. And, I, and this is the world that I grew up in. And, and frankly, I guess even though I'm from a different generation, I'm still colored by that sense that this common story, this common experience is special and, and actually worth fighting for. A very specific example of, of coming out of Watergate 
was three senior members of the Republican Party coming to the White House and telling Nixon he no longer had support and that he was going to have to resign. And he did. Mm -hmm. That there was a sense, as these four gentlemen spoke to each other, there was a sense of a floor of decency, a line that, that nobody would go under of tarnishing the country. And it's, it's a part of the same part of Nixon's character that allowed him to accept defeat in 1960 and not ask for a mm -hmm. recount. Or claim it had been stolen from him. Yeah. I have thought about that moment, how the world we live in right now is more fragile than it was back then, because Barry Goldwater, of all people, had the credibility, had the stature within the Republican Party to walk into the Oval Office and say, you have to go. I'm not sure that anyone in that position today, that no, I don't think anyone else could do that today. So we've had that collapse of authority as well. What I want to be getting to is what we've just been talking about and then connecting it up to the tenets of people's individual conscience. And a lot of times that gets back to the way in which they were raised. And you asked me about this before we started this, and I was thinking about what the, what the religious culture of our household was. And I was, I was an only child. And I actually had a flashback to something, uh, Scott, that I ha probably had not thought of in more than 60 years. And it's one of my earliest memories of a poem that my mother had memorized. And she probably memorized it in the early 1920s. And it had probably been memorized by her mother in the, in the latter years of the last century. But it's, it's a poem, Abu Ben Adam. Do you know the song? Where, no. uh, I mean, the song, you know the poem? It's, it's kind of an obscure poem, but, it, but I just remember hearing it all the time. And Abu Ben Adam, may his tribe increase, awoke one night from a deep dream of peace. And I won't read the whole thing. And he sees an angel, and an angel's writing in a book. And he asks him, well, what do you write? And the angel says, the names of those who love the Lord. And his mind won, said Abu. Nay, not so, replied the angel. Abu spoke more low, but cheerily still, and said, I pray thee then, write me as one that loves his fellow men. The angel wrote and vanished. The next night it came again with a great wakening light and showed the names whom love of God had blessed. And lo, Ben Adam's name led all the rest. And that's one of my earliest memories that it was that religion was about loving one another and that that's the way you were going to be judged. And uh, I, I guess, as I said, I hadn't thought about this in probably 60 years, but that was always the, the, ethical, the, the ethical world that we lived in. Well, when this earthly life is over for us, do you think we are then, there's a judgment on how we've been during this life? Yes. And I think the first judgment is how we judge ourselves. And I think that we need to judge ourselves looking back on our life and asking, what was the meaning of our life? Did we do what we were supposed to do? And I will tell you, I think about this all the time. I don't know whether other people have, you know, daily prayers. You said I'm still a Catholic. I'm still a terrible Catholic. And so <laughs> I, I, I do have a daily prayer and I've never actually told this to anyone. I mean, it has like four or five parts. The first part is basically, I try to imagine, I start by trying to imagine what, what judgment would be like in the eyes of, of God or whoever was judging me. And, I, and the way I do it, I'm just going to tell you the story. I imagine him showing me a movie of my life of all of the terrible things I did, all of the things where I was insensitive or I ignored, things that I don't remember. 
people that I hurt that I wasn't aware of or that I intended to, and that I would have to sit and watch this movie of my life. I start by having that thought. And of course, I'm judging myself looking back on it. Okay, where, you know, where did I fail? Where did I do it? And then the second part of my prayer is to thank God for being merciful rather than just. That knowing that if I was in fact judged, how things would turn out really badly, but feeling that perhaps I will be regarded or hoping that I would be regarded with, with mercy. And I, I, I do think this question of judgment you know, comes back to, as you look back on your life, just to evaluate, you know, what kind of a person did you want to be? What kind of a person were you supposed to be? And what were the decisions and things in your life that, that either added to that or detracted from that? And, and, I, and I think that that's, you know, one of the books that influenced me tremendously when I was uh, growing up, I think I was, read it when I was in college, was Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, where and I, I, I tried to find the passage before we came on, but I, I couldn't. Where what I remember is that he asked you to imagine that you're in your 90s or 100, and you're on your deathbed, and you're looking back on your life, and you're trying to say, "What was the meaning of my life?" Because obviously, this was his. The whole thesis was that you had to have a meaning. But he said, as you look back, look back to the decisions that you're making now, and ask yourself whether those decisions contributed to that meaning of your life or not. And that's been the framework. So I, I, I guess part of it is that knowing that you're going to be judged is the framework for making the decisions that you make in the here and now. W what the form of judgment is, I don't know, but I, but I know that I'm going to be judged one way or another. Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for the sharing that with us because those kind of thoughts, I think that more people have these kind of thoughts and, and ruminations in their silent time. And I think that the pandemic probably prompted more of this in people, that everyone's now getting to a place of confronting their own mortality. And I think a benefit of lifelong lived is the ability to look back with additional perspective, to have, especially people who have children or grandchildren, or have gone through different events and stages in life. But if I think that there is no one, no spiritual security camera watching my every move that I could get away with, mm -hmm. I think that I don't get away with anything. I, I think we don't get away with anything. Right. I agree. That all of our actions and even all of our thoughts have some impact to a greater or lesser degree. No, I agree on that. I, I agree with that strongly. And also to, to, your, to your point about reaching a certain age, I, I do think that this is one of the blessings of getting to a point where you can look back on your life with a different perspective. And, and particularly when you're perhaps freed from, you know, that, that constant anxiety and grinding drive, you know, to get ahead or your ambitions or, or all that sense of, you know, all of the alternative you know, possible routes. And at a certain point in your life, you say, okay, this is my life. This is where I am. And, and now I can with a certain amount of, with more calmness, look back on that. We don't get to do do-overs, but sometimes we get a chance to make things a little bit better, if that's possible. And if you do have that possibility, and by the way, this doesn't come, this doesn't come naturally to me. I was at an event uh, last year uh, out of town. There was a party or a cocktail party or something, and I looked across the room and I saw somebody that I had not seen in 20 years. And I remembered that the last thing I had done had been pretty awful. And I... 
took a stiff drink and I walked over and I said, hey, I got to talk to you for a minute. And I said, I, I've been thinking about you and I've been thinking about what I, what I said at, at this particular point and I want to apologize. And he was shocked. <laughs> and I was a little bit shocked as well because that's not something I would normally do. But again, it's going back, looping back into your previous life and saying, okay, that's not how I want to be judged. That's not how I want to be remembered. That's not who I wanted to be. I've always known you as a very conscientious conservative, and I was interested to learn that you actually were growing up with a very liberal father, and and you were a, a young Democrat and mm -hmm. a page at the 1968 Democratic National Convention. And one of your heroes is Eugene McCarthy, who I got to meet during the years of Politically Incorrect. We had him on many, many times, and I got to spend time with him. There was a ruminative serenity. Mm, well put. It felt that he was coming from a more spiritual place, maybe even being a clerical place or something. He was a, a hero to not only to me, but also my brothers growing up and around the time that we were first able to vote. Well, he was a poet. And I have to say that uh, I was probably spoiled by being associated with him uh, when, when I was young. Again, when I was in eighth grade, my father was the campaign manager for Eugene McCarthy in Wisconsin when he was running against Lyndon Johnson. And so I got to travel around on the press plane as an eighth grader and got to spend some time with him. And the way you described him is exactly right. And he's so different from any other politician. Uh, so when we describe someone as a liberal, there are different kinds of liberals. He struck me as as a small L, uh, you know, liberal constitutional Democrat, somebody who is just a fundamentally decent, but also a very, very serious and thoughtful man who was willing to take risks and willing to take chances, was not consumed by personal ambition, and dealt with politics as if, in fact, it was a serious business with intelligent people who could have arguments and discussions. So it seems like a, a throwback. Uh, well, it is, in fact, a throwback to another century. Uh, but he, he's one of the people, I think, who's, whose model uh, stuck with, with me, and I still admire him to this day. And yet, at some point, I think both you and your father became disenchanted with liberals. And you just were mentioning, and maybe you could talk a little bit more about, you said there are a couple of different kinds of liberals. So was it that, that you don't see enough of the McCarthy kind and you saw another kind which was anathema to you? Well, I think you need to go back to this this time. So we were, of course, very much part of the anti-war movement in 1968 and 69. And yet there was a turn on the left. I think it became both extreme, intolerant, and then sclerotic. It became one of my father's disillusioning experiences was, and this, you know, as a World War II veteran who had been the president of the Wisconsin Civil Liberties Union and a campaign manager for Eugene McCarthy, he was targeted by the extreme elements of the anti-war left who didn't think that he was sufficiently radical. And they tried to shut down his classroom when, during the strikes at uh, the university where he taught. And uh, he said, no, I'm, I'm going to continue to teach. And when they trashed the library and when they tried to have the university go on strike, he said, uh, I'm not going along with this. And he compared them to brown shirts. So, so I, I think there was a sense that, that he, he saw a strain on the left that was illiberal. And then throughout the 1970s, I think um, what you had was the left, for me, became intellectually less vibrant and interesting. And, and, I, and, I, and I found there was a brief window, it seems silly now to look back on it, uh, to say that 
that on, that the right was the party of ideas because it certainly no longer is. But there was a period where you had writers like like George Will and Charles Krauthammer who I thought were doing the most intelligent commentary and they were interesting and they were challenging. And for me, it was also a period as a journalist. I went to work for the local newspaper, became city hall reporter in Milwaukee, covered urban issues. You know, began to see that a lot of the orthodoxies um, were not working. They were failing and became open to other ideas. That it was one thing to have virtuous intention, but what if your intentions resulted in catastrophic consequences for people? And when I started asking those questions, people say, well, you sound like a right winger and you, you're a conservative. And, I, and after a while, I was my reaction was, well, if, if that's what you want to call me, fine. I don't care. I still want to ask these questions. And so that was that was a, the gradual disillusionment, the intolerance, the pressure for conformity, and I think a sort of drifting away from uh, liberal democratic norms. I would add to that, to Krauthammer and Will, I would add William F. Buckley uh, Jr. Uh, to, yes. to that group that even though I was exceedingly liberal, did a lot of protest marches, I was still charmed by him. And delighted that he was making me challenge my own thoughts. And then it's interesting you're talking about this evolution that, that you went through. When we started Politically Incorrect in 1993, this was an era before the internet, before cable news, when the right pretty much felt it did not have access to NBC, ABC, CBS, mm -hmm. Washington Post, New York Times. So it was a world of people who did newsletters. It was a world of people who were using the forum of talk radio, and certainly Reagan getting rid of the fairness doctrine allowed that to proliferate. But what I began to perceive after about a year or two of, of Politically Incorrect, and I produced the first 1,100 episodes of that show, I would notice that when liberals came to the green room, or I would get them on the phone before the show and sort of run over what their thoughts were and, and refine what topics we were going to explore, the Republicans worked twice as hard, the conservatives worked twice as hard as the liberals, because they felt that this was going to be perhaps a new platform for them in a world in which they saw that they did not have as many platforms or as big of a platform as they thought they deserved or wanted, liberals often would come having given no thought to what we're going to talk about because they thought we are better people. We're, oh we're, we're, we're yes. the cool kids in I class. And, and so very often the conservatives would mop the floor with the liberals. And as a producer, I'd be watching this happen show after show. And also Bill, to his credit, kept a five by eight blue card in which he drew a line down the middle. And he wrote on one side, the conservative positions he held, mm -hmm. and on the other, the liberal positions he's held. And one of the things we would do segment to segment, if we felt the show was getting too much one way or the other, is he would look on the card and go to a new topic that was going to balance out where we'd been. And one of the great things on our show on Politically Incorrect, because it was on commercial television and so went from, uh, you had three commercial breaks, total of four segments. I loved it when we'd come back for after the first or second segment and then the next topic would be thrown out and there'd be a different alignment <laughs> of, of, of the guest and the hosts agreeing. 
And people who had just been fighting with each other now were, were, were clasping hands. And I thought that also is a good role model to America, that maybe we should be taking things issue by issue, not personality by personality. So you mentioned William F. Buckley Jr. I should have mentioned him earlier. One of his, one of my favorite quotes of his was going back to this era that you're talking about, that was, liberals claim to want to give a hearing to other views, but then are shocked and offended to discover that there are other views. <laughs> now that that's of a time because I think now, yeah. but yeah. but I do remember this era in which if you were a conservative, you could not help but know what the other side had to say. You were always kind of in the minority. So therefore you had to sharpen the sword all the time. Whereas it was possible to be on the left and never, ever encounter a conservative idea. You could be in that world. We talk about bubbles today, but it was certainly the case that if you read the, you know certain newspapers, listened to certain radio stations, that you would never encounter a conservative, which meant that when you did, you were often at a tremendous disadvantage because this was new. And so when I first got into talk radio in 1990, it was very much as part of the, here's this small contrarian voice out here that you assume that everybody else is has access to these other ideas and everything. And here you could have a counterpoint, but it was within that. And of course, what's changed since then is that we now, we all live in various bubbles, you know, that's no longer the case because now they have their safe spaces where they can be just as lazy, if not lazier or dumber than ever before. And I have to say that among the soul crushing experiences of my life is watching the, the really dumbing down of all of our political discourse, but especially on the right. I mean, we've gone from George Will, Charles Krauthammer, William F. Buckley Jr. to Sean Hannity on Fox News. And that is, that's a, that's a national tragedy, but also it's, it's, you know, been personally profoundly disillusioning. Let's also remember that there was a time where the Barry Goldwater or William F. Buckley on the right would police the fringes of the John Birch Society. So they would never be coming within the tent of the mainstream and certainly not have, certainly people that extreme would not have a great presence at a national convention. Well, that's right. And of course, that era is also over now. Nobody has that, uh, that kind of credibility or willingness to do that. I mean, Buckley's, Buckley recognized in the 1960s that if you were ever going to have a viable conservative movement, you needed to do something about the conspiracy theorists, the anti-Semites, uh, the John Birchers. And, and sure enough, Barry Goldwater went down massively, huge landslide in 1964, but 16 years later, Ronald Reagan's elected president. So, but again, you don't have that. You know, Buckley founded National Review with the explicit goal of pushing back on the lunacy and making conservatism intellectually respectable. And that whole project has been destroyed now. And so when you, even when you describe me as a conservative, I feel like I want to raise my hand and say, well, just define what we mean by that, because I no longer know what it means. I, you know, in the before times, I could have told you, I'm not sure anymore. Or you may know what it means for yourself. Right, and at right. one point you were, you had a community around you. Yes. That community has moved on in a different direction. How hard was it when you went from being Eugene McCarthy, Democrat, and then actually becoming a Republican? Was it, was it difficult to say, I'm now with these people who heretofore I have been opposed to? Well, I never actually became a Republican. I, I, I became more you know, willing to 
entertained conservative ideas and then became part of the conservative movement. I, I never like to think in terms of political parties because if you spend time around actual political parties, you realize this is not a club you really want to be involved in and why would I want to put on my jersey? So I've always had a resistance to all of that. But as, as an only child, it's, you know, it was somewhat easy to be able to break with all of that, uh, to, to push. And what did strike me at the time was, though, as you move from liberalism into more unaffiliated was, are the number of people who then decided this was a, a commentary on what a terrible person you were. And, and I just remember thinking, wait, we can't disagree on tax rates or on education policy without you thinking that now I am a bad person. And there was a certain amount of intolerance, which I was willing to put up with. It was, it was much more intense later, though, when having been, having, you know, built a life around the, what I thought was a conservative movement that I understood, to watch what happened to it, to lose, uh, not, not, not just, not just professional contacts, but, you know, family and friends and to, to see that, that sort of soul-crushing experience. This is, a, this is a break with your whole world. And there's a reason why people don't want to do this, because people have an identity and they have a tribe and they have a universe they live in. And to walk away from all of that, and, and therefore I, I am not, I, I, I try not to be too judgmental about the people who have not walked away because I understand exactly what they would give up and not everybody can do that. I mean, I was able to do that because of my, my contrarian nature, I guess, but, but I can certainly understand why people don't want to walk away from their jobs, all of their professional network, uh, the people they go to church with, the people in their extended family. And in some ways, you understand people go, this is not worth it. So if, if, if the price of being in the tribe is agreeing with or being silent about all this, I'm going to go along with it. I, I, I understand that. I, I, it's not a choice I could make, but I do understand how it happens. And maybe tying the two strands of this discussion, one of them is a notion of faith, meaning of life. There's that idea. And the other, I mean, politics, as Hubert Humphrey said, it's the art of the possible. And you're always trying to figure out how much will the traffic allow? How much will the voters sure. permit on, on either side? What I see you doing is trying to have these things be one, that the word integrity comes from integer. It means one, that your thoughts and actions are the same. And it seems to me there was a break that you were perceiving between that which you believed or approved of and could agree with, with the direction of the party. And in order for you to maintain personal integrity, you were going to have to make a break. Yes, I, I think that's true because I, I do think that you, you, can't separate, you can't, can't separate ideology from whether or not you're a decent, honorable person. I mean, I can disagree with you on a lot of political issues, but I'm not willing to embrace a culture of lies and bigotry. And, and, I, and I thought that was understood here. Uh, by the way, one of my more disillusioning moments was, was being at a dinner with the uh, Archbishop of Milwaukee, uh, somebody that I was rather close with and we had a very, very good relationship with. And he also was saying that we're going to have to go along with this, right? Because, you know, abortion is the only thing that matters. And I remember looking at him and thinking, seriously, really? Character doesn't matter at, at, at all? Because ultimately, you know, character does matter. And I think we've learned that in such a dramatic fashion. And, you know, when we were talking about Watergate a few minutes ago, 
one of the questions that and this nags at me. You think about how history remembers those three Republican leaders that went in and told Richard Nixon that he had to go. I mean, history treats them very well. This was a great moment. This is a great legacy. This is what you want your grandchildren and their children to remember about you. And throughout this particular era that we're living in, I keep asking myself, aren't you concerned about what this does to the meaning of your whole political career? Aren't you concerned about how history is going to remember you or your children are going to remember you? I want to be remembered for doing the right thing. I want to be remembered for taking the right stand and not being complicit either through venality or cowardice in something that's just wrong. And that was not a choice that was made. So, you know, people ask me, well, was there some definitive breaking moment for you when you said, I'm not going to go along with this? And I, the answer is, and I'm sorry to say, no, there wasn't because it was never a hard decision. It was just, I just continually was shocked that other people didn't see it. It's one thing to be a conservative Republican, but I, I didn't think it had to be a complete break with, with fundamental compassion. And again, you know, Scott, one of the things that just continues to grind at me is, is how many people who call themselves Christians and evangelical Christians are willing to embrace and tolerate absolute cruelty, even brutality and hatred and division. And I keep thinking, how does this relate to your faith or what you think God wants of you? I'm interested as you're describing this because the notion of integrity that I mentioned a moment before, it doesn't seem to be as important to many other people, people who consider themselves to be Christians who go to church on Sunday, maybe even go to, uh, to Mass throughout the week, and see no distinction that when they're in the world of business or politics, they can behave in a completely antithetical to way. Total disconnect. Complete disconnect. Yeah. No. And, and I, I think, and what I think is yeah. that if there is a God, I don't think the God would honor the disconnection. I can't imagine. I can't, and I can't imagine anyone making the case that he, that he would. And this this comes back to this idea of you know unity of life that you that that you have your values that apply throughout your life. Now I'm not saying this as somebody who has been uniformly virtuous who has made good choices. Why, I, you know, I have that movie that I play of all the terrible things that that I've done. But every society needs to have these standards, needs to have these these aspirations. And the tragedy that we live in now is not that there are lies out there. Because there have always been lies. It's not that there's cruelty out there because there's always been cruelty. It's the fact that we have so many people who know there are lies and are willing to accept it. Who, when the worst cruelty is exposed, are willing to say, yeah, I'm okay with all of that. Uh, you know, this goes back to the Watergate. You know, what if in America we come to a point where you uncover all of the crimes, you uncover all of the tapes, and... At least half the country goes, yeah, so what? We don't care. You know, we haven't made many movies where the detectives discover the deep, dark secret and then everybody goes, yeah, so what? And that's kind of the world that we live in right now. Yeah. I guess the closest thing might be, uh, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. Yeah, exactly. So I think, I that's, think, I think yeah. that's the closest. Well, this is, a, this is a crisis for faith, and I think it's a crisis for religion, because if people do look at you know, people of faith and realize, and look, I mean, accusations of hypocrisy are nothing new, 
but it is breathtaking if if the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes associated with the worst, most brutal impulses in American culture, the most intolerant attitude toward people of different colors, this is a problem. This is, this is a fundamental problem. And I'm intensely grateful for leaders of the church who've spoken out because they play such an important role, but they're very much a minority these days. It's you talking about this movie that, that might be shown. And I think we all have the, the blooper reel of our sin awaits, awaits yeah. a screening, <laughs> That's a uh, I, I, I think. And people start twisting themselves into all sorts of contortions in order to justify abhorrent action. So I know that there is a meme among evangelicals about King Cyrus from the Old Testament. Yeah. And how uh, not a, not a Jew, but good for the Jews. Therefore, thank God for this person who doesn't believe what we believe, but he's good for us. And I've heard people justify an allegiance to Trump based upon that this, this that he is our King Cyrus. Yes, and and there will be people who will try to uh, twist the story of King David. You know, King David who committed uh, egregious sins and yet was still the king of of Israel. Um, these are rationalizations. Uh, these, these are stretches. I, th I think the more telling twisting of what's happened to the parable of the of the Good Samaritan, or the story of the Good Samaritan, who you know stops by the roadside and sees someone who is not of his tribe, not of his uh, his faith, injured, and he does the human compassionate thing and takes care of him. This is a fundamental story, I think, of of the New Testament, and you know, every Christian should understand it. And yet, have you noticed the last time you have heard people in politics invoking good, uh, the Good Samaritan? It's, it's after a Marine chokes a homeless man to death in a New York subway. Uh, the homeless man had been acting up. Some people thought he was threatening. We're not sure exactly how dangerous he was. Uh, man decides to intervene, puts his uh, choke hold on him, holds him down long enough until he dies. He has been described as a Good Samaritan by many Republican politicians. Now, here's the thing, Scott. You can read the parable, the story of the Good Samaritan many, many ways, but the story of the Good Samaritan is not the story of somebody who stops and then chokes somebody out by the side of the road. That does not appear in the Gospels. So the fact that that has been distorted, a story of compassion, uh, a story of you know non non tribal nationality, uh, reaching across different re religions, of kindness and, and humanity, turned into the parable of uh, vigilantism. Th this is where you feel sometimes as if uh, the world is upside down and, and it's a vertiginous experience. Charlie, I'm so uh, grateful for you taking this this time with me. There are a couple of questions sure. that I ask everybody as, as we conclude our conversation. Is there a quote, and it could be sacred, it could be secular, but is there something that you return to in times of stress that comforts you? Well, especially this one. This is from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Uh, optimism and hope are not the same thing. Optimism is the belief the world is changing for the better. Hope is the belief that together we can make the world better. And when I am feeling very dark, when I'm feeling discouraged, I, I, I remember that, feeling I'm not optimistic. But you can, you can be very, very concerned, have a great deal of anxiety about what's happening, but still have hope, which is why we keep doing what we're doing. 
I mean, the, the, yeah. the, the moment that you don't have hope, then you go, what is the point? And I think we all have, need to have a point. Yeah. And then the last question that I like to ask people is, is there a work of art, a, a book or a movie or a song or even an experience? Because some people have said, I would like everyone to travel to this place or that place that you wish everybody could have because you think if everybody had it, it might be world changing. So the one book that I would wish that, uh, that everybody that I interact would, would read not just once, but multiple times, if I had to pick one book, and this is tough, and, and, I'm, and I'm willing to extend and revise my remarks at some other time, but I wish the world would read more, uh, more Marcus Aurelius. I wish they would read more about, uh, read his meditations to know what a man of great power thought about life, meaning, virtue, history, memory, all of those things. I wish everyone in power, I wish everyone who thinks they aspire to be emperor would read what, what one of the greatest Roman emperors actually wrote. May I, may I tag this because I have mm. just finished the meditations oh my within God. the last <laughs> week uh, for the first time. I've been reading the Stoics and all the books that I've been reading, the, bo the books that I've been reading had kept mentioning Marcus Aurelius. So then mm. I thought, I've got to read Aurelius. It's astounding to think that this man is both a Stoic philosopher and he's emperor of the Roman I Empire. Yes, he right. has, he has, he wakes up in the morning and he's got pragmatic decisions to make, which are going to be causing the life or death or feast or famine of, of uh, thousands and millions of people. And yet he's taking this time to record these thoughts. And what also, and what intrigues me, and I would also recommend this book, is the uh, dry humor with which he presents. He's got one where he talks about, soon you'll be dead, and soon everybody who knows you will forget you, and then they will die. Yes. And I just start laughing because it's true. And But the lesson for the Stoic is to appreciate impermanence and appreciate what you've got at this moment. For instance, I'm appreciating that you and I can be talking together. And, and having this discussion, I'm appreciative of that. At some point in the future, both of us will have passed on. We'll either be judged or not judged. We'll either be in a, in a screening room where there's going to be this, uh, for me, it would be an epic uh, movie that would last for years that I'd have to watch all the terrible mm -hmm. things that I've said or done or thought. But the Stoics keep calling us back to now. And they mm -hmm. keep calling us back to appreciation. And humility. I thank you very much. Thank you. It has been wonderful. And now for the sermonette in my homily opinion. Charlie Sykes paraphrased Viktor Frankl, the Viennese psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor, as saying that we should decide what gives life meaning, then live life so that on our deathbed, our memories may match our meaning. It's what writers do with themes. The great screenwriter and director John Huston said, that a theme should ring like a bell through every room of a house. Frankel wrote, doesn't the final meaning of life too reveal itself, if at all, only at its end, on the verge of death? Well, I don't think we need to wait for our deathbed to look back. We can do it whenever we pass from one stage of life to another. On Father's Day, I visited Corpus Christi, Texas, where my younger daughter is spending the summer. The next day, she led me on a tour of the state aquarium where she's interning. I trailed her, letting her determine how long to linger at each exhibit. I resisted each urge I had to move on, and instead, I stood behind her 
appreciating how much more nature means to her than it does to me. A difference that I don't judge, but I celebrate. If the animals had names, she knew all of them. I asked her a million questions, and she had a million answers. I loved that she's become the strong, independent woman that her mother and I had always hoped that she would be. But also, in a bittersweet moment, I realized how, from now on, we'll play diminishing supporting roles in her life. She's exited our theater to make an entrance onto an exciting other stage that she will be sharing with other actors. On the afternoon that I took a lift back to the airport, she'd left early for work wearing her volunteer t-shirt, perhaps thinking of the baby alligator she might get to feed that day. I experienced the pre-deathbed flashbacks of the little girl we raised, the one to whom I read, I think more than once, Charlotte's Web, the one for whom I said prayers at night or the time on a hiatus from my all-consuming production duties. I stayed all day with her at kindergarten, sharing in recess, show-and-tell, lunch, and nap time, where, as her classmates later giggled to tell me, I snored. My daughter is now a woman with duties to perform, a degree to earn, a boyfriend to enjoy, and these images that flooded me are for her memories that are dim or forgotten. Victor Frankl charted three paths to meaning. I think we work to earn room for love in our lives, and I think we endure suffering to hope that sometime we will return to the sanctuary of love. And for me, that necessarily involves other people. And in the flood, the stampede, the march to wildly mixed metaphors of memories of my daughter growing up, many were sweet, maybe most of them were, but not all. Did I relish each moment that she was with us? Could I have been a better father or could I be a better husband or friend or colleague? There were images of love taken for granted like I had all the time in the world, which I don't, none of us do. And each moment of love ignored seemed, as it came back to me, to be a colossal waste of life. What had I been thinking? What had I not been feeling that I should have been feeling? And then I thought, what time have I left? What can I still do? And what will I do? Work, love, and how we respond to the inevitable sufferings of life. But to quote St. Paul, the most important of these is love without which we are nothing. May love ring like a bell through every room of our homes. Share with me your regrets or blessings at yegodspodcast at gmail.com. Please rate and review us at Apple Podcasts. And until next time, be of good cheer.